Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think that the Saints Churchill has sort of suffered to a degree from being misrepresented by the people who are claiming to follow him or to be inspired by him in that, you know, George W. Bush, for example, in 2001, when he was receiving a bust of Churchill to put in the White House, sort of said he knew what he wanted and he, he went after it. And he certainly seemed like a Texan to me, which was a kind of a, a model of leadership, an idea of what Churchill had done, which was just to say that he got an idea in his head and pursued it ruthlessly, irrespective of what anybody else said. Well, you know, actually, that's not a particularly wise way of carrying on. And there's another very famous speech by Churchill in which he says, you know, never give in, never, never, never. But then what he says after that, he says, never give in except to the convictions of honour or good sense. So that he's not saying that you must pursue your own course blindly without taking any notice of you know, the dictates of conscience or what other people may, may be trying to tell you, that listening is, in fact, extremely important. What is great leadership and how do you recognise it? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On this week's show, Nessa Colling and Nick Bentley discuss the philosophical charms of a classic Julian Barnes and whether the sense of an ending deserved the 2011 Booker Prize. And is the popular story of Churchill's wartime rhetoric a simple one? Historian and writer Richard Toy debunks some of the national myths on Churchill as revealed in his latest book, The Roar of the Line. This is a show about emotions and logic, facts and evidence, friendship and regret. But first, can memory be trusted? How often do we tell our own life story? How often do we adjust, embellish, make slight cuts? And the longer life goes on, the fewer are those around to challenge our account, to remind us that our life is not our life, merely the story we have told about our life, told to others, but mainly to ourselves. The powerful words of Julian Barnes from his novel The Sense of an Ending. Julian Barnes was born in Leicester in 1946. He's written numerous novels, short stories and essays, including Flaubert's Parish, England, England, Nothing to be Frightened of and Arthur and George. Well, in 2011, Julian Barnes was finally awarded the Man Booker Prize for his novel The Sense of an Ending, which is an emotive story about childhood friendships, spite and the imperfections of memory. So what makes Julian Barnes such a popular writer? Is it his eminent readability, his wry sense of humour, or is it just his understated writing style? Well, to answer these and many more questions, Dr Nick Bentley from the University of Kiel and Dr Nessa Culling from the UCD Library joined me earlier in the week to discuss one of England's most experimental writers. I asked Nick, is it fair to describe Julian Barnes 
as a philosophical writer. Yes, I agree. I think he's going over some old ground, isn't he, with the sense of an ending. But um, he is, it's a kind of evocative, very wistful book, isn't it? And I think, you know, those, some of those philosophical discussions are, are there sometimes to reflect some of the pretentiousness of the youthful characters in the first part of the novel. It's interesting how some of those philosophical questions are returned to in the, in the second half of the novel, I think, with, with, you know, kind of fresh insight, with a, with a whole life in between those, uh, those two particular moments. But he's infinitely readable, isn't he, Nick? Whether you find some of his fiction a bit pretentious, whether the themes you may find a bit grating at times, he's gifted at putting together a plot, isn't he? I think so. I mean, he's often seen as a kind of, uh, you know, an experimental writer, but it, it, it's an experimentalism that's, you know, not of that esoteric, showy kind. It is very accessible and very, you know, very readable. Uh, and themes that I think connect with many writers. Maybe perhaps he's moved towards that in, in his later writing. Perhaps some of his earlier novels were, you know, perhaps a little bit more experimental. I'm thinking of things like A History of the World and Ten and a Half Chapters, for example. Although, although still very readable, there was a, you know, a sense in which he was trying to uh, push the boundaries of the novel and push the novel form. I think I read somewhere that every time he begins a, no- a new novel, he tries to think that, you know, no one's written a novel of this kind before, which he recognises as a, perhaps an impossible ambition. But you get that sense of trying to experiment and push the boundaries. Nessa, for those who haven't read Sense of an Ending, can you describe the book for us? Yeah, certainly. We meet um, the central character in sort of, you know, he's middle-aged and he receives a letter and this sort of prompts him to explore and to to revisit his earlier years um, with his school friends and some, you know, a relationship that he had at that time. So without sort of, um, I'm quite conscious of spoiler alerts and stuff, so I don't want to give too much away, but really it's a sort of a trip down memory lane. And we follow him on this journey down memory lane where he revisits some of his early friendships and relationships. And as the novel progresses, we start to question his particular perspective. Mm. And he has quite a perspective on the past and it's a loaded, deeply emotional perspective, but it's extraordinarily beautiful as well. Do you think that as a writer, how he has maybe looked on issues of memory, do you think he's done something different than other writers, let's say compare him to Ian McCune or other writers like that? Well, it's interesting that you should mention Ian McCune because I felt that the sense of an ending shared many characteristics with On Chesil Beach um, in terms of the time period and with the first person narration and um, being a middle-aged man who's looking back on an early relationship. And I thought there were many overlaps uh, with the two books. So in that respect, I'm not sure if his treatment of memory is, is all that unusual in that sense, but certainly memory is something that has concerned Barnes in, in many of his novels. Can I ask you, Nick, if you were to compare Julian Barnes to writers like Salim Rushdie, Angela Carter or Martin Amos, how would you position him related to all of those writers? Do you think you can compare him or not? In terms of Angela Carter, I think I think Julian Barnes's experimentalism is, is is far more understated and and kind of modest in a way. Angela Carter, Martin Amis, uh, you know, both writers who you know try and, and challenge the novel form, but but often in a very provocative way and, and often in a very extreme way. Uh, Amis, for example, writes about excess in you know in, in postmodernity, whereas I, I get the sense of Julian Barnes, and I think that, as Nessa mentioned there, the uh, the connection with On Chesil Beach is is, is a good one. Because you get that sense of thinking about these issues of memory and experience 
but in a very kind of, you know, everyday sort of way, how memory can be partial and selective and untrustworthy and how it, people can interpret things differently at different times in their lives. So it's a very, you know, kind of understated experimentalism in contrast with perhaps some of those uh, more obviously, you know, playful writers like, like Amos and, uh, and Carter. And the fact that he's so subtle on bitterness and regret and forgiveness and these type of themes, it almost has more punch, more impact. It makes it way more intense in a way for the reader, doesn't it? I think it does. And I I think one of the the main themes of the novel is is about age and ageing, isn't it? And the relationship between getting older and memory, how perhaps in retirement there is more time to reflect on the past, to go over significant moments in one's life and to you know to reassess them and perhaps interpret them differently uh, of course in the, you know in, in the sense of an ending tony the main character is forced to do this by the arrival you know of, the, of this legacy from uh, veronica's mother but this sense of then having to go back to the past and reinterpret and rehash and uh, you know think through events from the past in a very different way now so how do you think he does his endings because some readers have issue with that Yes, I think um, the ending of the novel is, I suppose, I don't know if I'd say controversial. I think some people were possibly disappointed by it. It's certainly a very neat ending. And in that sense, the novel is quite sort of compact and there's a definite sense of resolution, unlike some of maybe his earlier works. But I suppose, personally, I anticipated the ending, which was slightly disappointing because I I think it's a compact novel and I think it's a deceptively accessible novel and I think he's doing quite a lot. But for me, the ending was just that little bit too predictable and I suppose I felt slightly frustrated in that I was interested to learn more of the characters that, that we don't have access to. So I suppose at that level I was slightly disappointed, but I, I do think it's an effective ending nonetheless. Nick, do you think Sense of an Ending is an infinitely more accessible read than Flaubert's Parish? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably the voice of the main character. I know you've got, in both those novels, you've got a you know, distinctive first-person narrative, but I think in, in the sense of an ending, you've got a character who's, you know, quite annoying in some ways. I mean, he's very ordinary, he's very everyday. But, he, I mean, reading it again, I, I, you notice how much he misses and how much he misreads events and relationships uh, and, and misunderstands things. And, of course, what I think is, is good in both of those novels, really, in Flaubert's Parrot as well, is is that the sense that there's lots going on below the surface. They both got what you might think of as unreliable narrators, but not, not narrators that are trying to fool you in any way, but that they're not quite aware of their own relationship with the events. And it's, it's trying to play those through. But I would say that he's become more and more accessible. Obviously, this novel, uh, Sense of an Ending, won, won the Booker Prize, and it, it won it in a year that novels were quite straightforward and quite readable. I don't know what that says about the Booker Prize, but um, it's certainly, I think, a, a novel that, that is more accessible and that the experimentalism has been perhaps toned down a little bit as he's got older. But why should people see or readers see accessibility as an almost a put-down? Because you have such a relationship with a book like Sense of an Ending that the character of Tony and the universal uh, experiences that he goes through in life and the ideas of forgiveness and friendship are, I suppose, everyone's acceptance of their own mortality and the ageing process. These are real human experiences and put together so artfully and so beautifully, yet accessibly. Why should that be a problem? Absolutely, I agree. I mean, I think there was a, a period in the maybe 70s, 80s, 90s when, you know, they, those kind of clever, uh, witty, experimental novels 
novels were often more highly valued with certainly with literary critics but also with a general readership I think we've moved on from that in a way and it is often very more difficult to write those novels that touch people in a number of ways and, and you know talk about everyday life without some of the what can often be seen as the clever kind of frippery that surrounds you know some some experimental writing and Nick, while there's some bleak scenarios in his writing, he also is very, very funny, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, it's quite a melancholic book, isn't it? You know, and a very wistful book. But there's some, you know, really funny sections. The, the typical Barnes paragraph, I think, you know, often leads nicely to a very well-crafted uh, irony and gentle satire on the, you know, the foibles and, and, and pretensions of human nature. I think, you know, he takes humanity, I think, as the source for satirical mockery, but also, you know, always has sympathy with the human condition and the, you know, the, the inevitabilities and the, and the foibles of the human condition. Especially those early sections of the novel, I think, when he's describing the kids at school and the various pretensions they have towards art and, and, and literature and culture. It's a very nice, you know, neat, ironic distance that you get, uh, uh, very comic. Nessa, have you read Arthur and George? I have, yes. I thoroughly enjoyed it. How different is it to a book like Sense of an Ending? Well, I suppose Arthur and George is um, a historical novel. So we have Arthur Conan Doyle and um, it also is based on a a real-life miscarriage of justice. So they're different in that respect. But I think what the two novels have in common is... A very sort of, you've already mentioned um, how accessible both novels are, but certainly I think since Arthur and George, Barnes has moved more in that direction in that the language is possibly more simple, but I think both are still packed with a variety of themes and and again, this idea of sort of a, a philosophy and certainly Arthur and George explores Englishness and difference and race and there are themes which he continues in the sense of an ending although something like race is more prominent in Arthur and George we still have this preoccupation with Englishness which comes through in the sense of an ending and um, one of the characters in it Adrian talks about his impatience at how the English can't admit when they're being serious about something. Nick he's very good on social anxiety isn't he? Yes, in the, in the sense that, um, you know, the way in which uh, relationships develop in a social sense, you mean? Yeah, you almost cringe as you're reading sometimes in some of the scenarios, the relationships. You, you develop a lot of empathy for some of his characters, the way he puts it all together. But you can almost be compromised yourself as it all pans out and transpires. He's so skillful at that, capturing that mood, isn't he? I think he is. I mean, I think Nessa mentioned there the um, the interest in Englishness, and I think there's there's often a lot of that in terms of you know the class system. You get a section in uh, in the sense of an ending where Tony goes to the family of Veronica, with whom he's having a relationship, and that sense of the nuances between behaviours between her family, which is seen to be you know slightly more upper class than Tony's family, and I think he's very again understated, but very very good on drawing out those nuances of social relationships. Nick, why do you think England, England was overlooked by reviewers and really didn't capture the public's attention in any way? I'm not sure. I mean, there's an odd kind of storyline there with a, there's a figure called Sir Jack Pittman who was kind of seen as a, a kind of Thatcherite Tory business figure who didn't perhaps catch on as well as, as some of his other characters, perhaps wasn't as well drawn. But nevertheless, it's a novel that, that draws on some of those recurring themes in Barnes, especially the, the way in which memory works and, and Englishness. The novel is about the attempt to set up or establish a, a theme park on the Isle of Wight, which is based on the whole notion of Englishness. 
And that, again, it's a, it's a very funny novel in, in the sense that it tries to identify, you know, what the, what the cultural signifiers of Englishness might be. But there's a, there's a very nice opening to that novel in which uh, the central character, Martha Cochrane, who's remembering uh, as a child, she used to uh, do a jigsaw puzzle with her father, uh, a jigsaw puzzle about all the counties of England. And her father would, you know, playfully hide one of the pieces. It used to be you know, probably one of the, the mid-counties like Staffordshire or Nottinghamshire, and then supply it at, at the end. And it forms a very neat metaphor, really, for that sense of, of trying to complete a whole. When, when her father leaves her mother and herself uh, when, she's, when she's fairly young, she gets the sense that he's taken this piece with him and that leaves a kind of hole and a gap in her life but also the connection there between individual identity and national identity there's a sense in which there's a, there's a hole at the heart of people's connections to their national and collective identity do you think it ran out of steam in some way or lacked the same bite as other julian barnes books do you think it lacked that kind of engagement that cutting engagement with the fragilities in life I think so. Personally, I prefer the... It's divided into three parts, and the first part is, is really good, and the second part's um, you know, pretty good as well. The comedy comes to the fore in the second part, but the third part, it's an odd novel in the sense that it's slightly futuristic. It, it projects to a kind of moment, a post-capitalist moment, in which uh, England has become this kind of pastoral, idyllic um, uh, backwater, which is kind of very interesting, but again, I don't think it connected with readers in the way that perhaps some of his other novels did, and perhaps some some of the characters weren't as neatly drawn as they are in, in, in the other novels. And I suppose, like us, writers can have bad days, they can have bad books. It's just very disappointing if you're an avid fan of a particular writer when the novel disappoints and you you've, you've so much hype and expectation for their next book and then it, it becomes a very disappointing experience. Absolutely, it can be, yeah. Maybe that's our fault because we're, you know, giving too much expectations onto the, you know, to the next work when we, we, we're particularly fans of the writer. Now, Nessa, you did a PhD on Julian Barnes and I'm wondering... I enjoy Julian Barnes as a writer and the pleasure of a new Barnes book and sitting on my couch and I love his meditations on life. But I imagine when you're bringing that academic engagement into a writer, do you lose a lot of fun in the reading experience because you have to be so acute in how you examine every detail in the book? Yeah, well, my my PhD was actually on contemporary British literature. So Julian Barnes was only one chapter. So um, there there were several other writers included. But certainly when I finished my PhD, there were some writers I needed to take a break from because Ian McCune, for example, who I've, I've always enjoyed, but I got to the stage where I was so, I had sort of immersed myself so much in his work that when I finished I can't remember what book came out directly after I finished, but I, I didn't touch it because I just had a sort of an Ian McCune overload. So I, I think I might be able to go back to him now. But um, definitely when you're that close to the material, it, it's hard to, I suppose, you, you lose a certain amount of the fun when you're reading it with a view to certain, um, you know, you're, you're examining it at that level. And Nick, if you were to reread one of Julian Barnes's book again, what would it be? Or if you had a choice of you're in a desert island scenario and you can only bring one Barnes, if you were to select, which would it be? That's a difficult question, but I think probably I would take a history of the world in ten and a half chapters. Why? I just like the way in which it's, it, you know, it brings together those very different, what appear to be very different stories, but the thematic stitching together of those. I just think that's a wonderful experiment and a wonderful piece of writing. Well, I think you better read Levels of Life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nessa, what, what would it be for you? 
For me, it would be Arthur and George. I, I really, really enjoyed it. But I also think his short stories, um, The Lemon Table, I think is pretty underrated. And I think there's some work of great beauty in that collection. That was Dr. Nick Bentley from Keele University and Dr. Nessa Colling from the UCD Library. Now, for those of you who are partial to a bit of popular English fiction, Nick has just brought out a smashing new book on Martin Amos, which is published by Northcourt House Publishing. Now, it's a compact little number covering everything from Martin's relationship with his father to issues on social class and race. And of course, some of the author's big reads, including the Rachel Papers, Time's Arrow and Lionel Asbo. Okay, let's break to some music. And when we get back, historian and writer Richard Toy will be teasing out whether Winston Churchill mobilised the English language and sent it into battle. Thank you. 
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. OK, let's keep with the theme of Britishness and the book. And here are some unsettling truths about the roaring Winston Churchill. Richard Toy is Professor of Modern History at the University of Exeter. Richard's published widely on Sir Winston Churchill and his notable books include Churchill's Empire, The World That Made Him and The World He Made, Lloyd George and Churchill, Rivals for Greatness and Rhetoric, A Very Short Introduction. Well, Richard's latest big read, The Roar of the Line, is a provocative, fascinating and meticulously researched book on Churchill's wartime speeches and a must-read for anyone interested in political communications, leadership and human psychology. I have to say, this book made me question some of our own national stories and uh, I think we've plenty of them. In The Roar of the Line, Richard writes, The lesson for those who might seek to emulate his rhetoric is that excellent style, even from a master of the English language, is no substitute for meaningful content. Well, Richard spoke with me recently on the perils of challenging the received view of history. I put it to him. Are Churchill's speeches a bit overrated? And all that talk of charisma and rally the nation, well, slightly overblown. Well, I think that everybody would agree that at the very broadest level, they were an extremely successful set of speeches and sustained over a very long period of time. At the same time, I think that there are a lot of cliches about the ways in which they were successful, that they are simply supposed to have inspired and invigorated people and so forth, that they had some kind of instant, almost magical effect. And although, of course, it is true that a very large number of people did report those feelings of being energized and so forth, actually, when you look at the story of the speeches as part of the war as a whole, it actually turns out to be much more complicated and that people didn't always have those reactions, so that sometimes people would listen to the speeches and they would feel depressed. And and that was quite natural because... Often Churchill was conveying very depressing news. Now, that didn't mean that they were bad speeches, but in a sense, the range of reactions that they got was much broader than we're generally led to expect. Documentaries and so on always focus on a select number of famous quotations or sound bites as though those were the sum total of the speech, whereas in fact, they were actually a tiny portion of the thousands and thousands of words that he was pouring out. I actually found it hilarious reading when you you write that, you know, some found his finest hour broadcast from 1940, that some said he they thought he was drunk, others thought he was tired, others thought his delivery was a bit pokey, some said it was a bit flat, and Churchill began to be known as the old windbag. So it's very much a very different view of history. When you're challenging the accepted view of history like that, how difficult is it and how do you actually establish the facts? Well, I think that, you know, I didn't set out to challenge the established view of the, of the speeches. What I did was to um, simply decide to investigate the reactions systematically. And I, as much as anybody else, assumed that they would tell us a particular story, the one that we're very familiar with. And so, in a sense, there was you know, a problem of psychological adjustment when I was looking at the reactions to the speeches and finding that they weren't telling me what I thought I was going to find out. So that having gathered all my material, I then sort of sat down and analysed it. And, of course, you sort of started with the first 
broadcast that Churchill had given as Prime Minister on May the 19th, 1940. And that didn't seem to evoke particularly strong reactions. I thought, oh, well, you know, it must be the next one he did, which was the famous, you know, fight them on the beaches speech. And indeed, the reactions there were a lot more complicated. So I thought, OK, well, it must be the finest hour speech. And again, as you've said, actually, there were quite a lot of negative reactions about the delivery on that one. So essentially, I had to kind of recalculate and sort of recompute this. And as I say, none of this is intended as a criticism of the speeches. It's merely to point out that they evoked more criticism and controversy than we're generally led to expect. And indeed, that the reasons they were successful were more complicated than we're generally led to expect. So, for example, I've mentioned that sometimes the speeches made people feel depressed, that in fact this was a rational and very sensible strategy on Churchill's part to make sure that he always gave a realistic assessment of how long the war was likely to last. He didn't succumb to the temptation to say that it was going to be over very quickly. And people had a a strong psychological desire that it should be over quickly. They kind of treasured the hope that Hitler might suddenly collapse in the winter of 1940-41, which, of course, he didn't. And so if you take, for example, Churchill's famous speech to Congress, United States Congress, in December 1941, very successful speech with the immediate audience. One of the things he says during that speech is, we must now start making our military plans for 1943. You might think, well, what's so exceptional about that? But of course, a lot of people at home were sitting there thinking, oh my God, is the war still going to be going on in 1943? That's absolutely terrible. Now, of course, you know, that was terrible news and it it was naturally going to make people feel negative. But of course, from the point of view of Churchill's broader strategy, he was doing the right thing because he never did give false hope at the point finally in the summer of 1944 where he is able to say, well, actually, we think that the war will probably be over relatively soon. People are then inclined to believe him because he's established his character as an orator, if you like, which is that he always tells it straight. So he was doing it right even though the reactions that everybody felt were not always of feeling extremely enthusiastic about everything that he said at the time. Yeah, Richard, it did strike me as I was reading The Roar of the Line that Churchill's speeches were very much a lesson in leadership. He was trustworthy, he was seen as honest, he was candid, he gave the details. So all of that increased his popularity because he was a straight talker. And that's what the people were looking for. Yes, I think that's basically correct. But I think it's also worth mentioning that there were a significant number of people, a larger number of people than we're normally told, who really didn't like him at all and felt quite negative towards him on account of what they saw as his failings prior to World War II. And in a sense, what you also have to remember, of course, is that in 1945, the British electorate decided to get rid of Churchill and therefore this story, which we're often told of his sort of absolute near-unanimous popularity, doesn't really completely fit with that story. So that although undoubtedly he had popularity levels which any prime minister today would be extremely envious of, I think there was a larger minority of people who really at best were prepared to put up with him for the time being as a war leader rather than feeling any positive enthusiasm. How much of an influence was his father, Lord Randolph Churchill? Did he try and emulate him in some ways? Did he live in his shadow? How do you think his father's success and also failings influenced him as a leader? Well, Lord Randolph died very young at a time when Churchill, Winston Churchill himself, was also very young when he was just 20. And so 
Winston Churchill, from then on, always had this conviction that he too was going to die young and that therefore he had to do an awful lot in a short period of time. And of course, one can see the tremendous amount of energy that he poured into his various activities, having written a number of books even before he became an MP at the age of 25. So there was that aspect. There was also the aspect that Winston hadn't really known Lord Randolph particularly well. They had a difficult relationship. And so that, in a way, the way in which Winston learned about his father was through studying his life. He wrote a two-volume biography of him, which came out in 1906. And he also studied Lord Randolph's speeches quite intensely and sort of learned some of them by heart. And when he was on the northwest frontier of India as a young man, as a young soldier and journalist, he would sort of walk around, you know, sort of reciting some of these speeches. So I think that Lord Randolph certainly was a very uh, powerful influence on him, but it was, it was in some ways a rather indirect influence in that it was not their direct personal relationship that had this effect, but the lack of that direct personal relationship made Winston want to get to know his father after his father had died. But you think he learned from his father's mistakes? Lord Randolph's greatest mistake was to resign as Chancellor of the Exchequer, having made it to that office as a pretty young man, really, And he offered his resignation and Lord Salisbury, the Prime Minister, accepted it. And really that was the end of Lord Randolph's career for all practical purposes. And so you don't see Churchill making any of those sort of impetuous resignations. And I think that on the whole, Lord Randolph was, although people often said that Winston was sort of unstable, couldn't be trusted, always uh, sort of getting a new idea and uh, sort of running after hairs, if you like. Actually, compared to Lord Randolph, he was kind of a model of stability. And in a sense, he, you remember, he stayed somewhere close to the top of British politics. You know, for decades, he was first elected as an MP in 1900, finally stood down as an MP in 1964. In the meantime, had been Home Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, Prime Minister twice, and a range of other offices. Um, in a sense, you don't stay at that level by being a kind of a, an absolutely wild nonconformist. Um, that although there were all these sort of unpredictable aspects to Churchill's career, in some way he surely did understand the system and managed to maintain his position within it over an extraordinarily long period of time. Now, I'm going to put one of his more inspirational speeches to you, which is possibly one of his best known. It's after Rommel's defeat at LMN, and Churchill says, now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end. Do you think big, bold statements like that and big, bold speeches like that, that they can make the decisive difference in a war situation and make people fight on? Do you think that's credible, that that speech can actually do that? Or is that not getting very carried away? I don't think that... I think you've got to see the speeches as a facet, and it's certainly a very important facet, of his overall war leadership. So that the speeches by themselves would not have been enough without his public appearances touring the bombed areas. It would have not have been enough without his sort of effective chairing of the cabinet and his ability generally to take the advice of the military top brass. So I think that, you know, a single quotation is never quite enough to explain, indeed, even the success of a single speech. We have the reactions of the British people, partly through the Ministry of Information's Home Intelligence reports, partly through the reports of the Sociological Research Organisation, Mass Observation. And, you know, 
actually it's rare that the reactions focus on a particular quotation, a particular soundbite. If you come back to that line that you quoted, and of course the third part of it is sort of, this is not the end, it's not the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. You've got to realize that if you listen to that being delivered, if you, if you watch the newsreel, then you see that that's actually intended as a laugh line. And so the way that things look on the page are not always necessarily the way in which they were delivered in real life. Now, it's interesting when you talked about his teamship abilities there, you know, the accepted view in history would be that he had a very, you know, autocratic style, that he charged ahead. He was somewhat stubborn and bullish. But one of the things that comes out in your book is the fact that he actually did collaborate. He took the direction of his juniors when he needed the advice. Yes, I think that's quite right. And I think we see this in the drafting of the speeches so that this was uh, something that would involve him in intense effort over a period of a few days where he would dictate a draft to a secretary and then that draft, once he was satisfied, would be divided up and sent out to different government departments depending on you know, whether he was talking about sort of, you know, the Navy or army operations and so on. And then the government departments would be given a short time in order to come up with any comments about 24 hours they would send their comments back. And quite often, you know, Churchill would sort of look at these comments and say, you know, so what idiot came up with this one? But essentially, if it was actually a well-founded point, then more often than not, at any rate, he would take that advice. So although there were exceptions, for example, his speech when Russia had just been invaded by Germany in June 1941, there were exceptions where he sort of played his cards very close to his chest and really drafted the whole thing himself without taking much advice. For the most part, he was sort of more collegial, more consensual, although he often wrapped that up with a sort of a personal manner which sort of gave the impression that he was perhaps more bullheaded than he really was. But that ability to listen to the advice or certainly to recognise when the advice is worth it and is going to make the difference, that ability alone is what makes a leader possibly, isn't it? Yes, well, I, I think that in a sense Churchill has sort of suffered to a degree from being misrepresented by the people who are claiming to follow him or to be inspired by him in that, you know, George W. Bush, for example, in 2001, when he was receiving a bust of Churchill to put in the White House, sort of said he knew what he wanted and he, he went after it. And he certainly seemed like a Texan to me, which was a kind of a, a model of leadership, an idea of what Churchill had done, which was just to say that he got an idea in his head and pursued it ruthlessly, irrespective of what anybody else said. Well, you know, actually, that's not a particularly wise way of carrying on. And there's another very famous speech by Churchill in which he says, you know, never give in, never, never, never. But then what he says after that, he says, never give in except to the convictions of honour or good sense. So that he's not saying that you must pursue your own course blindly without taking any notice of you know, the dictates of conscience or what other people may, may be trying to tell you, that listening is, in fact, extremely important. But you think, though, that because Churchill is so embedded in British national mythology, that it's very hard to get an accurate reading of his psyche, his temperament, or what he meant at a certain time? Because, you know, there's so many nuances there in one way, but there's also so many versions and so many, there's the kind of the accepted view that everyone has been brought up on. So it's very hard to dig deeper at it or to deconstruct it or peel it back in some way. I mean, I think it's, if, if you look at the primary evidence 
of what people were saying at the time, for example, in looking at the reactions to the speeches, that if you content yourself to only make statements based on evidence that was actually made in re- reaction you know, within one or two days of a speech being made, then I think you're on firm ground. But that does lead you to devise a picture which is significantly different from the picture which is given to you if you allow yourself to be influenced by what everybody supposedly knows about Churchill, which was that all his speeches were incredibly successful, all of them were hugely popular, and everybody felt sort of absolutely inspirited by all of them. Now, in a sense, the psychological difficulty, as you say, is to not be influenced by, you know, sort of the conventional wisdom. Of course, to to recognize where the conventional wisdom comes from and how it emerged is also important. But in a sense, it's not too difficult to, I would say, to write a, a nuanced view of Churchill, you know, whether it's about his speeches, whether it's about his view of the empire, which is another book that I've written, or about his relationship with David Lloyd George, which is another one. But, of course, what you do then confront is, is a group of people who say, well, in spite of what the primary, they don't quite put it like this, but in effect they're saying, well, in spite of what the primary evidence says, the direct evidence, we know this can't be true because, because we basically know it. We know that the story is different. There are an awful lot of books out there which put across a nuanced view of Churchill, but they actually, in some ways, certainly struggle to have a real effect on what the popular image is. But sometimes, Richard, people don't want their history taken off them. So, for example, it's different as, you know, school kids in Ireland going, you know, and hearing about World War One and World War Two and the different figures and how history is taught. But we've all grown up on, you know, the Rally the Nation stuff with Churchill and these his iconic status in history. But when you present history in a different way or if you challenge the accepted views or you move things around a little bit, well, people can become very disappointed because what they've grown up to believe has somewhat been shattered. And that can be not just a very disappointing experience, but it can be a very undermining experience because your history is then flawed and it makes you challenge everything else and say, well, if we got that wrong, did we get this wrong? So it's a quite a tricky balancing act, isn't it? Well, I suppose that I would distinguish, you know, sort of t- talking about churches at any rate, I would distinguish between different groups. Of course, there are still some people alive who can remember the speeches. You know, most of them, of course, would have been uh, now you know, very young, um, you know, many of them children during that period. Now, you know, many of them have a particularly sort of fixed view in their mind of how things were. And, of course, they themselves often have had very distressing or traumatic experiences when their towns were bombed and so forth. So one can well understand in in those instances why people do have sort of perhaps genuine memories, which perhaps are nonetheless somewhat unrepresentative. Of course, they, you know, however much they themselves felt inspired by one of Churchill's speeches, of course, what they can't do is speak for everybody in the country who was there at the time. And the Ministry of Information's reports are probably a more, more accurate guide to that. But I do feel sympathy with those people who actually were there at the time and and have these treasured memories that they want to hold on to. I think it's when later generations, obviously having been influenced by some of those arguably somewhat inaccurate memories, sort of insist that the the old story must be true irrespective of the evidence that, that I have rather less sympathy with it. But I mean, I suppose that you're right that potentially having your view of history changed is very challenging. But I think that actually an awful lot of people have the reaction that, in a sense, if their view has been challenged, then the person doing the challenging is automatically wrong, rather than making a serious effort to assess the evidence and to perhaps reshape their worldview, which might in fact be the 
sort of the more logical thing to do. So there's, there's an awful lot of emotion involved in this rather than just pure logic. And of course, Richard, it all comes back to the facts and the evidence. And in your case, you used Mass Observation Group, Home Intelligence Reports, Ministry of Information and Gallipols. So whether people can be somewhat sceptical of what you're saying, when you have the proof, when you have different interpretations using reliable sources, it shapes things in a very different way. I'm just wondering his weaknesses. You've published several books on Churchill. What do you Mm. think ultimately was his fatal weakness? Well... I think that if you look at his career as a whole, one can obviously see what looked like, in retrospect, a series of very important errors, as well, of course, as the successes. So one automatically thinks perhaps of Gallipoli in 1915. One thinks of his attitude to the Russian Civil War and the desire for British intervention in the Russian Civil War after 1918. Uh, One might criticise his actions during the general strike. One might criticise his actions as Chancellor in returning to the gold standard. I think I would probably single out as his sort of worst single error was his unwillingness to take seriously during World War II the Bengal famine in 1943, which was what killed many millions of people. And in spite of what his ministers and what the Viceroy of India were telling him, uh, he was very unwilling to make provision by diverting shipping in order to try and provide more food to India. And I think that, in a sense, the other errors that he made, many of them were the result of impetuousness. But one might say that the impetuousness was, in a sense, the sort of the negative side of, of some more positive characteristics, such as you know, enthusiasm and imagination and energy and so forth. I think with, with the Bengal family, it's difficult to sort of really, really see a positive side or, or see that this came out of something which was actually in some ways also a character strength. I mean, of course, it was understandable that he was very much focused on fighting the war in Europe. But nonetheless, his unwillingness to engage with this issue, I think you know, fundamentally it was a product of essentially his racism that he didn't see the Indians as being the equal of white people. And I think that was you know, probably the single biggest flaw in his thinking throughout his career, which did lead him into an, a number of serious errors. And that bigotry is a a very shameful character flaw. I'm just wondering, lastly, is he somewhat overrated as a leader? If we move outside from all the speeches and just look at Churchill himself, Churchill the man, has he been blown up in some way in history and has he been overrated? Well, I think that it would be perhaps fairer to say that he's been viewed in a very simplistic way and the, the idea that he could simply by making what I repeatedly said were very good speeches that he could simply completely alter the emotional characteristics of the British people you know, just like that, I think is too simple. It's also the case, I think, that he wasn't particularly good as a military strategist in the sense that he often had what his advisers thought, in particular the chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Alan Brooke, uh, often thought were kind of harebrained schemes because he always wanted to be doing something he often wasn't able to see the need for patience and therefore advocated ideas which really were of little military value merely for the sake of appearing to be taking action. Nonetheless, I think that it is the case that although he wasn't a brilliant military strategist, he was actually a very good geopolitical strategist and that therefore the way in which he courted Roosevelt during the period when America had not yet entered the war, his effective realisation that as Britain's power was declining, it needed to line up with the United States and to make an alliance there. These were very broadly the right decisions. And although he 
sort of spoke so often of his, his love for the British Empire and so forth, actually I think he was realistic about Britain's decline as a great power. And that therefore, in order to understand him, it is not necessarily a question of saying that he was a less good leader than is, is popularly understood, but what the characteristics of that leadership were were actually very different from what we're so often told. fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, was subjugated and starving. Then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. was Professor Richard Toy, The Roar in the Line, The Untold Story of Churchill's World War II Speeches, is published by Oxford University Press and retails at about €20. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. This evening's music comes from Clint Mansell and the hugely talented Clem Leake. I hope you liked it. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's show and the lovely Paul Murnock on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this evening's programme with some insightful words from the great Julian Barnes, who wrote in Levels of Life, Nature is so exact, it hurts exactly as much as it's worth, so in a way one relishes the pain. I think if it didn't matter, it wouldn't matter. Good night. Good night.